Ladies, gentlemen, boys, girls, and those of you somewhere in between, welcome to another episode of The Chris Roberts Show. This episode is a little bit different to normal. It's a double interview with dark fiction authors Ruthann Jaggy and Eric Hansen. Ruthann writes dark speculative fiction and horror. She's a published author with work in several best-selling anthologies and recently signed a contract for her first novella to be published in January 2022. Eric Hansen earned his MFA in Dramatic Writing from NYU and was the recipient of an outstanding writing for the Screen Certificate. His work has been published by Smith & Krauss and applause books in eight play anthologies. More than 35 of his short plays have been developed and produced in the United States. His fiction and non-fiction has appeared in Ghost Orchid Press, Horror Oasis, Collective Tales, Curious Blue Press, Trembling with Fear... The Parliament's House, Stranger with Friction, Raven and Drake, and Versification Publishing House. His collection, All Things Deadly, Salem Stories, will be released by D&T Publishing in August 2021. Let's get into the episode. The pen is mightier than the sword. A podcast for writers. The Chris Roberts Show. Eric Rufan, welcome to the show. To start, can you tell me a bit about yourself and your writing journey so far? Yeah, I think I'll uh, tell you a few things. So many years ago, it's turning into many now. I'm 42, and I don't know how I'm feeling about it. But um, <laughs> when I was at, um, I went to Sacred Heart University in uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. And I'll be totally honest with you, I was placed on academic probation. I was a pretty good student, but I just I was not feeling it, was not interested, and I took kind of on my rebound, if you will, I could pick in a science class or a playwriting elective, and I took a playwriting elective, and I didn't really care for the theater and didn't really want to do it, but I'm terrible at science, so I was like, I'm going to do this. A couple of weeks after doing, like, writing monologues and this and that, I had a professor pull me aside and be like, hey, what's going on with your life? What are you doing? And I just said, you know, I, I was really had no direction. I was like, I don't know. I'm not... I'm, really don't know what I'm doing but she was like you could kind of stick with this she's like you know you're not going to make any money but she said there's something there so you get you've got some inkling for dialogue there's something if you were interested you're pretty lost kind of keep hacking at this and the irony was I was doing a lot of writing at night it, it like lit you know it was like lighting the match and I was started to do this at home a lot and I was like wow I never thought of myself as like writing for a theater or anything like that but my brother was an actor so I was kind of close to movies and everything like that so long story short I graduated college the day after college I moved to LA and Los Angeles to live with my brother and he helped me stage black box plays so that kind of took took shape and some successful some not so much but then some theater companies take us on and I got panned by the critics. I'll be totally honest, my first few plays, but they made a lot of money. So people wanted to work with me. But honestly, after two years, I had this Los Angeles fatigue and I'm not trying to make fun of Los Angeles. It just wasn't for me after a while. And I was like, I got to return to the East Coast. So I did and kind of transitioned into a, another lost phase of I want to help people, but I also want to write. So I had a couple of caretaking jobs, got into teaching. And then was just doing all this writing on the side and started having plays, small ones, mind you, produced in New York. And I always had this like notion of, I really want to get into NYU because NYU does film, TV, and plays. 
and I got rejected a few times and I got waitlisted and I was like, I know if I apply again, I'm going to, I'm going to get in. So I commuted to New York city to take a class during that, that year and then got in the next year. And it was quite frankly, the best, one of the best experiences in my life because the rigor there, they were very tough on you, very demanding. I mean, I can't tell you like the rewrite process and how much they encourage you. I mean, you, there are people in that program so much better than I was, but it really was a, you know, do you want to write something 48 times? Like people didn't really want to really, or you didn't want to be, and, you know, one or two professors and you love them at the end, but they really dress you down in front of the class. And you're like, wow, there's like 24 people in this program. And I was just, you know, not just me, but other students you are like, wow, we put up 80 pieces and that professor like two all year. And you're like, okay. So you go through that, but I just, it really kind of, put more of a focus on writing, being able to write on command, but then also not marrying yourself to like, hey, I'm done with that. And kind of, I think it's so great. It was a wonderful environment for that. So fast forward to COVID, you know, I had some modest success. I had some plays published and this and that, but I also had just a, a level of fatigue. A publisher I knew got was let go. And then there's all these calls out either small productions of mine were getting canceled or there was these calls for, um, Hey, you want to do online COVID plays and this and that. And it was, it was kind of a turnoff and I understood I, I shouldn't have been dismissive of it because they were trying to be supportive and ride out through that time. But during that time, I had been to Salem a few times and that's where I married my wife in August. And we just absolutely loved the place, Salem Mass. And I had outlined this, I saw it in my head, outlined this collection of stories about Salem. So framed around a single area. And I was like, I don't think this is a screenplay. I don't think these are like an anthology film. I think this is fiction. So during COVID, it allowed me to kind of make that transition. So that kind of cuts to where we are. And that collection is going to come out in August um, by D&T Publishing. You know, Ruth Ann can tell you in a minute probably about them. But yeah, it wasn't a long term. It wasn't like a plan to merge towards fiction. However, I would tell you growing up, my biggest influences were you know, like whether it's Stephen King, Hemingway, Sylvia Plath, all those people were like, my biggest influences were from fiction. That's kind of the journey. And that's kind of where I'm at at this moment. So Ruthanne might have a different take on how she got here. I do. I do. Hi. Thanks, Eric. Actually, I have a completely different, which is really interesting journey than, than Eric has had so far. I've always written I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, and if you know anything about the area, it's full of mythology, and, and it's it's the home of the, the headless horsemen and all the, the, the autumn stories, because mostly the environment and the lakes, and there's a lot of influence there. So Halloween was always the biggest thing in my life growing up, more so than Christmas even a lot of the time. Fast forward, as Eric said, um, Catholic school, you know, the whole nine yards. I was caught with books that I shouldn't be reading and the nuns took them away from me. But actually what I loved, because I was really kind of a geeky bookworm growing up, tall, skinny, nobody bothered with me. Those people I found a comfort in and a heroine. Because in all of the stories that I was reading that was dark speculative fiction bordering on horror, even younger, those people rose above and those people had superpowers and they found ways out of things in these books. So I was always very drawn to them. Well, then as I got older and I did travel, a lot of extensive travel, 
I started writing even more and I found all over the world there's interesting stories. There's superstitions. There's once again, there's mythologies. There's things that people whisper about that are in family or certain ethnic groups that we don't know about, but they're there and they're whispered about. So I moved to Texas, gosh, probably 30 years ago. And I've lived here and I kept writing, but you know, life and kids and everything kind of takes a backstage. Well, pre-COVID, I was looking for a book on a really, really famous publishing company's website. And I saw they had a writing contest. And I thought, huh, you know what? I'm going to give this a try. What have I got to lose? So I actually entered the writing contest. I did not win. And we can get into the subject of rejections later, which is a hot topic among anybody that writes. I take rejections as creative opportunities. But the publisher of this really well-known publishing company included a note with my rejection. Of course, they had thousands of entries. I was punching so far above my weight, but not knowing that it's a competitive field or that so many people were going to start writing during COVID. And that's another subject. I just sent my entry in. So when he sent me my rejection, he actually took the time to tell me, you've got a lot of raw talent. I really love this story. Eventually, I'd like to publish it on our website when we get to that point, when we put out the book with the authors that were selected. And I thought, hmm, hmm, maybe I can really do this. I like doing it. I love being able to tell the stories. So the following month, which, which, which would have been January of early, beginning of January last year. So I got into a couple of groups, social media, you know, horror writers, book support, this kind of thing. So another really good friend and publisher, um, RJ Rose of Crimson Pinnacle puts out a call for what's called the community books of horror anthologies. And he picked up my first story and published it in the first edition as over 125 positive reviews on Amazon, which is huge because it's so hard to get a book reviewed. So from there, it just kind of grew in terms of connections, meeting people, making submissions, getting rejections. I've been really, really fortunate because I've connected with some wonderful people in the community. And Eric and I, along with many others, we trade open submission calls and that type of thing. You're always looking for cool and creative projects to submit to. I think I've been published 15 times in the past year. And my first solo book will be published January 2000. Well, it's actually a novella. That will come out January next year, and it's by the same publishing company, totally coincidentally, as Eric's book is coming out in August. They just happen to be one of the ones that were having an open call. And the way that the way the process works is there typically aren't there are ongoing rotating submissions for short stories, novellas, flash fiction. We can define those a little more carefully. Novels and novella is a whole other animal. Those typically open for very short periods of time, and the publishing probably won't be for a year, sometimes two, three years in advance. So we both happened to answer an open call by a fairly new publishing company, and lucky us, we got picked up for solo projects. So needless to say, I'm totally immersed in it. I never wanted a full-time job. My husband and I are retired, but I have a full-time job, and I love it. 
this is the most fun you could ever have. <laughs> it does sound pretty amazing. It's probably it is, one of my amazing. dreams. <laughs> it sounds great. There's a few things there that kind of jumped out that's, that are worth exploring for, for both of you, I think. Ruthann, as, you, as you're just sort of finishing up your bit, I was quite interested in the superstitions and mythologies. Is that, is that where a lot of your ideas kind of are driven from? You know, it's interesting because... I tend to write my stories from more of a, a folksy, um, folklore kind of vantage point. I tend to be inspired by, like I say, I'm, I'm very rural. I live on a cattle ranch in the middle of nowhere, Texas. So the things around me tend to be older and they tend to be a little more unique than what you'd say, say, in a metropolitan area. I tend to be influenced by what isn't said. You know, so often people will say, write what you know. Well, when I get an idea for a story, it's typically like, why is that there? Or why is this doing this? It's what I don't know about what I'm seeing or driving by. We've got a lot of old cemeteries. We've got some unique buildings. There's a lot of history. The prairie where our ranch sits Technically, at one point, was the home of Indian battles and that like that type of situation. And also, there were Civil War regiments that passed through and that kind of thing. So, when I see like a like a let's for instance say two gravestones in the middle of nowhere with maybe a little fence around them, well, I park my truck, I get out, and I walk over to it because I kind of want to imagine. Not necessarily what I know, but what I don't know about it. So I tend to be influenced by very small, esoteric, strange little things that just kind of make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I think that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I've not, I've not heard that perspective before. You know, what, what I don't know about something or what I can't mm-hmm. see. I find that quite fascinating, actually. Well, and, and you'll hear so many, and I do believe, and I think what people say, write what you know, They're more or less saying, try to write in your lane. In other words, if you totally don't know about something, uh, research is a big part of writing. And we can joke about this forever. And we do. If anyone ever looks at our Google searches, I, I, you know, the things, the things that writers, particularly in this genre, tend to Google. Recently, I had a story and I, I, you know, you, you want to know like what happens in an undertaker situation with certain things or how long it takes a body to do certain things. But people will say, write what you know. And I, I do get that. But for me, it's more that everyday little thing that might just seem something off. So I think sometimes when you listen to, you know, Eric was talking about Salem and that's very rich in a lot of things too. It's also got a lot of commercialism associated with it too but there's still enough strangeness in these things where you can find one little thing that to you bugs you and that to me is what i like to write about it seems that it's working for you it's uh, it's nice to sort of hear about the successes you know we'll get on to like uh, rejections and things in a little while which which brings me on to eric actually like something you mentioned um when you were talking about almost being thrown into the deep end, really, like a baptism of fire almost, when you were doing your screenplay writing and you were heavily criticised by your tutor. How do you deal with that kind of intense attack? Was it constructive or was it bordering on nasty? (laughs) 
Um, well, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. There was somebody in the first week that was like won one or two awards for writing and came in there. And then the first week was like, well, I'm just going to do free writing. I'm just going to do free writing. This is my process. This is what I do. And well, you saw him going down the elevator one day and you're like, no, oh, he's not, he's not coming back. That was about two weeks into the program. Look, a lot of the professors actually had our back. There were one or two that were extremely tough, publicly tough in front of you, in front of the whole group, but then, you know, would catch you later and be like, hey, by the way, you know, you're doing this really well. So, you know, there were a few times where you felt like, okay, am I just rewriting for the sake of, is this like a big power? You know, I, for you to ask that question is interesting because, you know, you have a few times where I'm watching some people crack or, or I didn't typically crack, but I'd go home and be annoyed. You know, and be like eating my eating my cheap sandwich, and be like, "Oh, why? My nineteenth version of that five page scene. What does this guy want?" Like, and you're like, "Ugh!" I could tell Ruth Ann that. So that's going on in my head. I'm like, I'm just in this tiny apartment with somebody I barely know, and like, ah, why? But then you just get a little pissed off, and you're like, "Okay, I I'll write it fifty eight times until they're like, you know, we're we're good here." But that was a a person who was like, "Look, his whole thing by the end was." I want you to learn how to write on command. I mean, we get these exercises like, I want there to be a bird. There's a man, you know, a man with one arm. There's a tractor. There's this. And you're like, this is ridiculous. And then you just rip it. And you're like, well, yeah, when you add 45 elements, like this is, does none of this make sense. Um, <laughs> but his whole thing was you got to write on command and then obviously have that raise your hand mentality for writing because some people might want to hire you for a job or, hey, uh, there's a referral. Hey, can you write... Uh, there's this uh, screenplay. Somebody's looking for a rewrite on a screenplay about a ballet, you know, the history of ballet or something. And I could, you could go, I don't know nothing about ballet. And then you're out. Or you go, yeah, I'm good. Let's give that a go. So that was his MO. A few people, I mean, I'll be honest with you, like great people and wonderful writers would just, if it was early enough, they would just drop a class and be like, well, we're done here. I don't need to be criticized like that. You know, a few others, I'm like, I had one professor. I mean, I, I loved her, but I stood my ground and was like okay you don't like how I'm writing this but I'm writing about these characters so when I came into uh you know class about on the fifth session if you will I had a this like prodigy writer he was like 22 just this amazing writer he was just so phenomenal so hardworking. I just said hey you mind just taking a look at, at this rewrite <laughs> and he was like sure <laughs> he would read anybody's stuff and he's like, this is a page one rewrite. I'm like, yeah, it's a page one. He's like, you threw everything out. It was like, you threw out 88 pages. I'm like, I, I just said, I'm sticking with the characters. So you kind of had to stand your ground and not let it bother you. And honestly, her advice, while I didn't like it, it did turn out to, I did to deliver a better play, you know? So is there a little bit of, you know, they're testing you to test you? Yeah, but, you know, you're also around some students who are just, like, so married to the, oh, that's what I want to do, and they won't waver, and they'll, they'll get to the point where they drop the class, or they just go, I'm not writing that then, right? And I was like, no, I'm going to write about these people. And But, you know, it's also like that Picasso thing. You know, I walked in with some experience, but it's also like, okay, I'm going to learn their rules before I start writing everything how I want to write it. So you kind of play the game for certain professors, but there was value by the end. And, you know, when somebody pushes you to work that hard and you don't want to work that hard, <laughs> I still think there's value because you're like, wow, that was like a big workout too. I basically wrote two plays at the pace of someone else's one. You know what I mean? So you're like, but just because you, I was so pissed off, but also stubborn that I'm keeping these characters. And 
and she she was down for it and just write it a different way. And I did, and it worked out. So I will say that we had that one class with 24 people where, you know, occasionally somebody you get pretty emotional about getting dressed down, you know, like you really get, that doesn't work. There's no conflict. This, this scene stinks five words in. You're like, three-page scene? What are we talking about? Like three words in, you're criticizing somebody? But it, there was a method to the so-called madness. After you were there, I would say a month or two, you're just like, oh, okay. It's just about hard work and I could do hard work. And I, I, I've been around plenty of people who are so much more talented than I am, but I kind of hang my hat on it. I know Ruthie Ann would, would tell you this, kind of hang her hat on hard work. And that's honestly the only reason I ever achieve anything. I, I might have some inkling of talent here and there, but it's really, I just get mad and annoyed and I'm really driven to just create things, not necessarily have them reach certain heights, but just. But NYU was helpful in that because I'm like, oh, okay, you want to annoy me and piss me off and make me work harder? I'll work harder. You know, I won't, I won't love it all the time or I'll think something's pretty good, but I'll be like, okay, if this is a work test, I'll do that. Whether Ruth Ann has that experience or not, I would think I have a feeling without sort of knowing her, she works her tail off. I do. I do. And one thing I have learned, even though I have not been writing as long as Eric professionally, it's so much more work than anyone tells you. I don't care what level you're looking to produce work at or what your genre is or whether you write books, poems, screenplays, whatever. It's so much more work because once you put the words down and you actually get somebody to look at them for you and, like Eric said, pay attention to them and maybe offer suggestions for improvement – or poke you with a stick and try to bring even more out of you that's better. That's the beginning. Then you have to be receptive to editing. And I will say at this point, J.D. Horn, who edited um, and produced, published the Good Southern Witches book, which is just a brilliant little anthology, he pushed me so hard in the editing process because he's had great success personally as an author and an editor. And I had not done what they refer to as line editing professionally sitting one with one, you know, in a session where you're going back and forth. Basically, every single line that you've written is being questioned. It's being reworded. Your character's Even though you've written them a certain way, their voices may change a little bit in the editing process. And editors, good editors like JD, they're suggestions. But there are also editors who literally will say to you, look, if we don't rewrite this character this way, I'm not publishing your story because it's not what they want to put out. The great thing that I found about the editors that I've worked with professionally, they're receptive, but they will poke you with that stick and they will say, if you're going to develop this story, and that's called developmental editing, we have to do these certain things along the way so that your character makes sense, your story stays true, and you've got a conclusion that the readers are going to want to read. So yeah, there's there's a there's a there's a lot to that. Very honestly, writing is the easy part. If you can get your words down, it's 50% of the battle. But the real work starts when you get a piece accepted in my opinion. I think once you're accepted, you really have to put your your lace up your work boots. I'd be interested to kind of hear whether you think that's 
made you sort of harder to other types of criticism now because that that sounds like it's really intense so do you find it quite easy to deal with yeah I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of saying yes i'm like no doubt about it like i I don't know. I, you know, I could talk more in detail, but I mean, I kind of marvel at this, the people's obsession with the rejection where um, people treat it like that, that their story or their project's over. I'm like, a week later, somebody could pick up that story. I mean, I understand, but this is, this kind of relates to a fixation of my work getting into this one place. You know what I mean? Fixate, you know, you fixate on that and you think like, oh, you know, what's the point of this? The rejection's a rejection. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it can be nasty. Sometimes it, you get no, they just don't pick your thing and you hear no feedback. I, I, I actually had a rejection recently, received a lot of praise. I think it's one of my best short stories that hasn't even been done anywhere. And I was actually, wow, what a thoughtful rejection. It felt kind of good because my instincts, sometimes I'm way off, I'll be honest. But this one, I was like, I really think I got something good with this one. Somebody was like, I just wish we, we ran out of spots. We can't add it to this collection. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. okay, no worries. Okay, so after the writing process is finished, what what's the next step then? So the, the editing process, how does that look for you in terms of the hard work? How does the editing process look? I mean, it, it varies for each project. I'll be honest. You know, it. I, I don't want to say you care more care more about one than the other, but you know, if, if there's something I'm incorporating flashbacks or something that's like, there's like, okay, I got to go logic police on this and make notes. Like, does that add up? Does that make sense? And then obviously with its structure and bad sentences or bad prose, you know what I mean? You go, I got to get rid of that. Or did this, did this reading to go, yeah, I like things that take their time, but I also have to be cognizant of like, does this move? Do people want to keep reading? And, you know, I'll do an edit on that. But one thing I would say I do is, I do an edit. I look at one area each pass. You know what I mean? So I'll be like, okay, I'm just going to look at the pros. Like, I'm just going to look at how bad my sentences are and try and clean them up. And the next one, I'm going to go, I'm going to look at the character Tiffany and see if this adds up because I have this reference to her father who abandoned her. But then I have some other reference to him coming back. And I'm like, okay, time and logic does that add up. Like, I go and look in, in that regard could be about characters it, then it, like I said it could be not just prose I go be honest with myself take some notes here is anything repetitive is anything preventing this story from moving you know like I said I like slower things usually but case in point to give you an example in terms of a rewrite it's just something I recently finished I finished a novella that structurally I had in my rewrite this wasn't planned when I outlined it but it's how it took shape. It's 44 chapters, which sounds like insane, but it's a short book. It's 43 very short chapters and 44 is very long. So I had to make sure on a pass, like am I, am I really building this the way I wanted to? Like, I remember years ago, I'm not even much of a, a fan of like the Da Vinci Code. Like I read it, like I, I don't typically read books like that, but I remember like my brother and people were like, you got to read this, you got to read this. And the only thing I took away from it was like, whoa, like every two pages, like the chapter's over. And I, it had that kind of notion. And I'm like, for this latest project, I thought, can I do something like, like a Dan Brown in the genre and the style of story I want, but like family drama, that's just kind of like slow burn, really paying attention, then really ratcheted up at the end. So in terms of an editing process and the hard work, if you will, in my building, do I repeat anything? Is this, will readers want to get to this long end? 
and then looking at that long end and going, boy, did I earn this? You know, not just in terms of character journeys or narcs, I was lucky enough to have any, um, but did I earn that at the end? Did I, did, did they kind of run on the treadmill long enough to go, okay, guess what? Now you're going to run up a huge hill for 15 pages or 20 pages. Can they handle that? Now, there's a stubborn part of me that's like, that's the way I structured it. But I also went through that to make sure that readers can get to that section no problem. That's just whether I stuck the landing or not. But you got to go in and really be cognizant of, you know, reader's perspective. And then obviously, like I said, each pass will be, okay, I'm just reading for that character. Each pass, I'm just reading for prose. This one's just for grammar. So in terms of Ruthann, I don't know how it's different. I just had to mention an example to kind of tell you how I go about it. So that's where I am with the process. It does vary for each, for each project, but I do kind of commit to those types of passes for each separate passes on a specific thing. That's quite interesting. It's almost like passing it through a filter, isn't it? Um, several times until it, by the time it comes out the bottom, you know, you've got a clean piece of work. <laughs> so you, you, your genre is horror as well, isn't it, primarily? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. Dark fiction, however you want to categorize it. But yeah, I, I you know, years ago at NYU and I was writing, you know, a lot of people were like, you should write a horror movie, you should write a horror movie. And I didn't really do that. I was kind of fixated on like westerns and <laughs> trying to just <laughs> i don't know but i i i'm really fascinated by families that fall apart that's kind of like my mo that's what i like to take dysfunction in families so obviously this genre and you can get you know dark darker themes um it kind of made sense it was like a delayed way to get at the thing that people had been telling me to do and it didn't mean it had to come out via fiction just you should explore that side. So I don't know in terms of Ruth Ann's influences, if she was like always, this is the type of stuff I wanted to do um, or her life experiences kind of took her there, but I kind of flocked to the darker material now, but that I think there's so many different shades of it. You know what I mean? A, a, a dark piece could just be a, a, a marriage, a new marriage falling apart. Like I still think that's fascinating. It doesn't mean you need ghosts or anything like that, but yeah, a, a dark piece could be about how hard it is to raise a newborn, which I'm going through, but you know, like, oh, my, like that, can you frame that around some type of dark theme and put it in this genre? Of course you can. I don't know how it is for Ruthanne, but it's kind of how I go about it. I, lo- I love that description of putting, putting a, a raw work through a filter. It's like a sieve, actually. It's, it's really, really fine mesh. It depends, you know, there's, we could talk about this for hours, but there's basically Two ways that people tend to write that I've discovered, a lot of people use a very organized process. They outline, they make notes before they even start to write. I design a character and a title, and then I start to write. And it tends to unfold organically for me when I'm writing. Yes, I do have a plan in mind of where I'd like it to go, Half the time, though, I don't know how it's going to end up. And like Eric said, do you get to the ending you deserve? Have I earned this ending? When I, when I, when I have it all down and I have the basic story, well, then I go back and I am ruthless with my editing. I conserve words. In fact, I have trouble meeting higher word submissions because I am ruthless. I cut out so much that just may not be relevant to the story. And there are certain words that I go back and I cut out a big thing for me. And this is probably because it was kind of, I did a mentorship with a, with a really 
wonderful, wonderful publishing company, Crystal Lake. And one of the things that I had three mentors, and they're three of the best in the biz. I don't have any advanced degrees in writing. I didn't go to school for writing. My background is very creative and very loose in terms of the courses I took and that type of thing. But there are certain words like that that you do want to cut out of your writing. Your tense matters. I'll go back, and if, if I've used something where the word should be, she's stopping, and I put she stopped, then I go back and I correct it to my present tense if that's what I want the character to tell their story in. And, of course, that's a whole other conversation is about the tenses people write in and how they proceed with their storyline. But for me, the editing before I even submit tends to be extremely ruthless. I chop. And then if, it, if, if I feel like somebody needs more of a backstory, well, then I'll go in and I'll take something out and I'll paste it on something. I'll go in and write a backstory and then put what I've written in to make sure that my characters are balancing out. Because what tends to drive what I write is something more, I'm very character driven. I think Eric likes to write, or from what he just said, from more of experience or things that he's fascinated by. I'm more character driven. I like to create really interesting, sometimes strong female protagonists, both dark and light, but I'm more character driven in terms of there's something that's typically happening to them or a goal they want to reach or they're reacting to an immediate situation, which is a well-known horror trope, as they call it. What is your immediate horror that's coming at you? I'm writing what makes them tick, and more often than not, there's something in their past or there's something ancestral or there's something in their surroundings that prompts them to act the way they act. So when I'm editing, I try to make sure that all of that hangs. I don't want to take you here and then throw you off there. I want to make sure that you get what this character is coming from. Also, something that's really important to me is I get right into it. I want my first paragraph to just grab a hold of you. Because if I can get you with one paragraph, you're going to give me a little more chance to read, especially if it's a short in an anthology where you're in a collection of short stories. Somebody can flip those pages real quick and go on to somebody else. But if I can grab a hold of you in that first character with that first paragraph and tell you who my character is, you might give me a chance and finish reading the story. So I kind of approach it from more of a sense of immediacy, and I really want you to know what's going on right from the get-go. So I think we're different styles, but we see a lot of things the same way when, when, we, when we, we do certain things. How does writing horror differ from writing other genres? What aspects of the storytelling are especially important for horror stories? You know, I'll, I'll take it from some of my experiences, whether it's genres or just kind of like types of writing, like playwriting and screenwriting, you know, like screenwriting, you, you're you really writing what people see, but screenplays, screenplays are interesting because you have the luxury of the quickest edit. Like if you're, if you write a good screenplay, you could be in Hawaii in one second, two seconds later, be in Spain with a smart cut it, smart edit rather, and or your dialogue, you could just throw to the next scene and you're like, wow, we're at, outside at Starbucks or at a cafe, and then we're back on a boat. Like, you have a lot of luxury. On a stage, that's a little bit more difficult because you're going to have all these props or scene changes. 
in terms of horror writing fiction, though, you know, Ruth Ann, and she does, she's written two great stories that I've, I've, I've read in those books that you mentioned, so Good Southern Witches and the, the one by, you know, D&T, the games anthology. And she does, she's great at grabbing the reader right away. I will tell you, I think that matters more for horror and dark fiction. Like that is kind of the point. You want to keep them, you want to hook them somehow. And it is harder to hook them with like a slow burn. Hey, we're really taking our time. Like, do we need this? But can you put something in there? You know, can you introduce us to a character that's doing something compelling right from the get-go? Can you, as Ruth Ann talked about her own editing style, and I don't know, maybe if she's all about character, maybe she's going to go, and this even ties back to my NYU experiences, but it does serve me well in fiction sometimes. Uh, still, still learning. <laughs> Ask yourself a question. Can like look at where you start and then actually drag your finger down and go, can or should I start here? So sometimes like a character in the middle of doing something is way more interesting than some intro about that character, blah, blah, blah. And you're like on page two before anything unique or interesting happens. So sometimes I would say, can you, whether it's behavior or a situation, can you put us in there where our reader's immediately going like, oh, all right, I'm already getting uncomfortable because that's the name of the game. But I just think if you can make us care about people at the same time, those, whether it's scares, not just jump scares, but the scares of like, oh, I don't, I don't want the wife to find out this, or I don't want the husband to learn what the mother did with the baby. It can really torture you. Not if you just structure it right, but if you put together enough interesting behavioral scenes, but also don't give us everything where you're going to make the reader wonder like, okay, what am I going to read next? You know, and, you know, Ruthie, I mentioned the anthologies ever more so important in those where you've got like a seven could be a five page story, 14 page story. You know, this isn't a, a full book. So, you know, some people might come across our work and not just ours, but I might be guilty of the same thing of an anthology, but the same thing when somebody gives a speech or anything like that, like, can you hook us? Can you get us interested? Can you, you know, open up with, oh, that's an interesting situation, or what a unique way to describe that scene, and then jump into it. I'll be honest, a weakness of mine, or what I'm, what I'm trying to learn is to be a little bit more, get a little bit better at that, but that's kind of where I stand. I don't know what Ruthann would say in regards to this, what's completely necessary in terms of the dark fiction. I think, I think that a, a couple of things, um, the genre, of course, horror takes in so much more than most people realize. Um, if you tell somebody you write within the horror genre, they're like, oh, yeah, it's all blood and guts. It takes in dark speculative fiction. It takes in fantasy. It takes in dark romance. It takes in thriller. It can take in a noir in terms of crime, that type of thing. So the genre itself is so often misunderstood. But to me, the most fun of it and why I love to express through words in the genre is that it gets a, it gets a response. It gets an emotion out of you like nothing else. You can make people feel something and there's so many layers to it. Um, the term splatterpunk is being tossed around currently as a very, very popular trope or area of horror. I don't particularly write in it. I do read it, and I absolutely appreciate it. So you've got that side of it where it's in your face, and it's like 
saw or hostile where these visceral things are happening and people are reacting. But then you've got, like Eric says, and I love this, what's going on in the other room? Where's the baby? Where's the babysitter? You've got the psychological horror that plays at your mind. So the thing that's so fascinating about the genre, and I will say I, Mr. King is a master of it, you plant these little seeds that make people react. You make them care about the character. And then they kind of stress you out a little because in horror, there's something in it that's not natural. In other words, it, it's, it's, you know, we all know the world around us, whether it's our world or the world at large. But when you write in the horror genre, there's something that isn't natural happening. And that, to me, is what makes the genre so unique. So you've both got short stories coming out in some anthologies. You've got Good Southern Witches by Curious Blue Press. And It's All Fun and Games Until Someone Dies by D&T Publishing. And do you want to tell us a bit about your particular short stories in these uh, anthologies and, and also sort of how that came about as well? It's all fun. They're actually both anthologies are out currently and they're both very successful. They're doing well. It's all fun and games until somebody dies was a call put out by D&T. And what drew me to it, and I have to be very honest, it was a beast to write because the call called for a game and the publisher, D&T, Use the, use the phrase, connect it back to a childhood game. But one of the specifics of the call, and I will add this in, when you're submitting to something, read what the publisher is looking for. Because if you don't submit to what the call is, you're going to get rejected immediately. And what was interesting about it is you had to create an entirely different game. You couldn't make it connect back to anything we already knew. You know, she said, well, you know the childhood games. Okay, if I can sense any of those in your story, I'm rejecting it. So what we had to do that was so challenging is we had to come up with an entirely new situation and then add the dread into it. And that, to me, was just absolutely brilliant because so many submissions, as beautiful and wonderful as they are, they take in tropes or themes that we all know. This one was totally out there. And I thought, oh, I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to try it. Well, I'll tell you what, it had me in tears. I almost gave up a couple times. And then when it hit with me and my story in this, it's called The Contract, I went, you know, we've, we've all... There's a thing going on today with immediate gratification, but nobody wants to put in the work for things, but yet everybody wants to be rewarded. Now, whether or not that's a good or bad thing, my character in my story has made some bad life choices and truly feels she's entitled to better. So when she has an opportunity to be on a game show, she not only takes the opportunity, but she's very much in a hurry to sign on the dotted line. And I think a lot of us are guilty of that. People throw contracts at us and different things. And we're just very anxious to get the end result. We're very anxious to get that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It doesn't go so well in her favor. And then I threw in a little bit of thing because once you sign on the line, 
you don't know what you're signing away if you don't read the contract. And, you know, that's a famous thing. People make fun of Apple, and we all love Apple. I love Apple. But there's so many warnings and conditions in every little app and every piece of music that you buy or purchase. Nobody reads them. We've all become so accustomed to these warnings. Well, she's got a warning in hers, too, but she's too anxious to get to the end result. And I throw in a little bit of her background. She's also too anxious to leave her children with people she doesn't know because it's easy to go off and do something else and different things that I tie in there that maybe connect to true crime situations or things like that. I will always say there's, I can't say it in Gaelic, but my family's Irish and there's also a well-known phrase and it's, if you dance with the devil, be careful when the music ends. Well, when her music ends, it doesn't end so well. So once I was able to come up with the story for this very unlikable character. And to go back about what we just talked about in terms of horror, you have to connect to the character. Your reader has to connect to the character. Like them, be afraid of them, or despise them. If you can get your reader to connect to your character. Oh, yeah, and my husband, who totally is not a horror guy, when he read that story, he said, you know what I like about this one? We all know somebody like the girl you created in this story. And he said, that's my favorite story because I know who she is, named a few names, that type of thing. So in the horror genre, I think as opposed to other ones, it's very important that you can get a response from your reader, whether it's absolute horror or it's, Oh, I don't want that to happen for her. Compassionate, you know, that kind of thing. So that's my story in this book. And maybe Eric can talk about his and then we can go back to Southern Witches because that's a whole other character. Yeah, I just, I wrote a story. It's called The Pumpkin Thief. And actually going back to what you were talking about in terms of what should be included in, in horror, you know, I did hint earlier about like family dysfunction. And, you know, this is a story about, a, you know, a boy and basically his single mother that's the kind of stuff I like to hang my hat on or what I'm interested in. But getting back to the horror elements, you know, the one thing every reader is going to say different things, but the one thing I was content with about this was this mystery of like where this, there's this popular game, but nobody knows where it came from. And then there's this mystery of like, okay, a student goes missing and what's going on with that. And then, you know, meanwhile, here you have a son and a, and a mother who's always busy and that type of relationship. But more importantly, even, beyond anything that happens in the story is writers and I don't want to sound so like bossy. I don't mean to be bossy. Like writers need to listen to like when something's not working because I had a collection and that's going to come out in August. But the point of the collection was I had plenty of people being like, you're going to have a real hard time getting a collection out there. And I did believe him because I was getting this advice from the pros. So my next step was, okay, well, I got to start outlining or come up with an idea for a novella. And this was one. But I started doing my outlining. I know Rutan has a different process, but I started doing my outline. I'm like, you know, there's interesting stuff here, but does somebody want to hang with this for 120 pages, 140 pages? I'm like, no, no, I can do that. I, I can accomplish what I would have. And, you know, I don't want to like belabor the point and go on and on. And it actually, this posting by DNP, I was attracted to the posting for like what Ruthann pointed out, how unique it was. But I reacted like that's, that's the one. I'm like, that's what it is. This, this, 
this call, whether it gets rejected or not, I was like, this call is actually going to make me write that story and it's going to, I can fit it within that amount of words, if you will. I don't like fixate on words, but I said, oh, you know what? This is the call and this is the pumpkin thief. That's in, I'm like, okay, it's a game. There's a guy, Mr. Jack O'Lantern. I can, I can figure this out. And that sometimes writers, I think, need to step back sometimes, not just because of sub, you know, submission calls asking for something, but sometimes you kind of go, you know, really? Is that, do I really want to spend, <laughs> is that a five month project or is that a, you know, weekend cranking out material? But so I listened to myself and denied myself and prevented myself from spending, I want to say a long time, but turning this to a novella or novel. And I think actually it's better for it. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about like wasted time, but I know writers I love. And like I said, I've gone to school with met people who are so much better than I am. And it's frustrating when I don't see them succeed, but sometimes they live with something or won't, won't adapt to something and go, maybe this is a short story instead, or maybe this is a short film. Maybe they don't allow themselves. They, they stick like I'm stubborn. So I get it but they'll be so stubborn to the point where you're like a couple of years goes by and you're like, really? At, at some point you got to either move on or go, I'm going to go write something else. So this one, I was not just happy that it got accepted and there's quality work in there. I was just happy that this was a, a result of going, okay, I actually don't think this is what it is. This is actually a short one. And I think actually it, it's kind of get in, get out early and not tire somebody out with 140 pages of something that could be done in maybe 12. Since this anthology came out, I think because the call was such a challenge, and as you say, we really had to push ourselves in terms of creativity. Several of the authors in this book have since been signed to independent contracts for books next year. And I think I'm looking at it, Eric, and it's you, myself, Joe Scipioni, Nathan Ludwig, I think because this particular anthology tested us, it forced ourselves to look at what, what they wanted from us and then to really push our creativity. And like Eric said, like I said, I was in tears over this submission. It wasn't working. How can I make this work? And I was forcing the story. And then when I sit back, and very honestly, it was an incident. Something on TV triggered it. Very unpleasant situation in the news. And I thought, there's my character. This is, she's so anxious to have all this. Ooh, but did she read the fine print? So um, I really think that creative calls like this are also very, very necessary. Don't write just what you know. Eric brought that up. Stay fluid. Be willing to write outside your wheelhouse. Try something you've never tried on before. So I think that's a real important thing is to talk about being fluid and don't just write the same thing every more. You know, somebody brought something to my attention recently, and actually it's somebody I work with that does some promotion. And she said, don't assume that folks who, write, who read horror don't know what they want. They know exactly what they want. These are not uneducated. These are not people that don't read constantly. If anything, folks that read in the genre know more than a lot of other readers what they want to see in their work. So you really have to stay fluid. 
I'm quite keen to hear more about how this book deals came along. Did they contact you after you were pu- published? Oh, gosh. Um, no, it was an sub- open submission process. So typically what happens when you get a contract is a publisher will put out a call. You will have either a submission on hand. And let's, let's talk about rejections for a second because so many people focus on rejections. I just take a rejection as a creative opportunity because basically a rejection started my whole writing situation. You take these rejections and yes, people do get emotional and no, nobody wants to hear the word no. But when you get a rejection, it means that you also get a bank of work and it forces you to look at the story a little deeper and figure out if there's a good story there, like Eric brought up earlier. Am I forcing this story or is there really something here I can embellish and build that? So if you're fortunate with your rejections, you take them and you stick them in a slush pile. And then when there is an open call for a novella or a novel, which typically is a much longer body of work than just a short story in an anthology, you've got something ready or you've got the foundation for something you can build on and write a longer story. The story that got picked up for my novella to be published next year was a short story I had had on hand, but I rewrote it, I reworked it, I talked through the character more, I made a few of the scenes more interesting, more descriptive, deeper, darker. So you make a submission. Now, you along with 5,000 other 672 folks, and very honestly, since COVID, so many more talented people have started writing. So maybe there were... 150 submissions to a call a year and a half ago. Now there's going to be four or 500 submissions to a call. So it it causes all of us to up our efforts as well. You submit to your publisher. Then one of these days, and it could be weeks, months, hours, years, you get this wonderful email that says, thank you very much for, um, and I'm going to do a self-plug here, the new girl's patient submission to our recent novel novella call. Congratulations. DNT Publishing would like very much to work with you on your project next year. You get a contract in the mail. You talk. You do different things. You sign it and you go, holy shit. I got a book coming out. And then you do weird little dances. And if you're like me, you make your husband buy something. That's, it's a submission process and it's a process of elimination. But again, I cannot stress enough. You have to pay attention to what your publisher's looking for. Now, a lot of times in the cases of an open call, especially for a novel, they don't really have a condition. They will say they want it between so many words. Something that's a little bit more recent and I feel it's important. I am not a fan of censorship. But there are certain conditions that publishers will not publish in the world we live in today. You have to be cognizant of those. Don't write about those things if they tell you flat out they don't want them in there. They may say, we don't want romance. A lot of publishers that are looking for a a novel or novella, even though it's a particularly popular genre, they don't want it in the horror genre for this call. There may be another call about it down the line. I, I put in a I put in a submission recently, along with probably two thousand other people, and I, I haven't gotten a reply back yet. 
but it was the parameters were very, very specific in that it was for strictly a classic monster in the public domain, meaning that you could now write about this, the copyright had elapsed, and you could, you could include this monster in your story. So you really have to be looking at what the publisher wants, be it a short story or a novel, but when you get a book contract, it means that you've submitted an independent body of work that won't have anybody else's name on it but yours. So that's kind of the looking at this anthology. That's the cool thing. Several of us have gone on to pick up book contracts, independent book contracts. It gives you the opportunity to be published with people. I'm at awe at some of the people that are included in some of the anthologies. These are the people that I read and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to be in this book with so-and-so. And then once again, you do your little dance, you make your husband buy you something. And, you know, it's, it's just, I cannot believe some of the people. Um, I've got a couple coming out this year. Once again, I am flabbergasted by who I'm getting to publish with. And once again, that's the beauty of anthologies. You're included. And I, I always say I like to keep people around me that are better than I am because I learn from it. And if you're included in a book that those people who are well-established authors or a better known name or whatever, or readers really flock to whatever they write, it's just such a plus. It gives you such confidence. It, it boosts your confidence level as an author that you kind of play off each other. And it's a very generous community overall. I meet very few people, even really no-name authors, that aren't willing to share. I mean, they want to see you do well for the most part. They're excited for you. If you're enthusiastic and you're doing the work, and we talked about this earlier, it all comes down to doing the work. Eric, please back me up. There's nothing glamorous about this. There's nothing glamorous about it. It's sleepless nights. It's waking up at 2 a.m., going to the computer and having your husband or wife go, what the hell are you doing? But you, you thought of something, and you got to get it in there right then. And it's constantly keeping a notepad. It's constantly being aware of what might jog a story or a character. It's so much work. I'm afraid if anybody had ever told me it was this much work, I would have never done it. <laughs> and what about your book deal, Eric? Yeah, um, so it's with the same, you know, D&T Publishing, and, you know, that's they put out the It's All Fun and Games anthology. So there was a submission call. The interesting thing about it was I have a different path, a little bit of a different path than Ruth Ann because I wrote a collection, and I don't know if Ruth Ann knows this, I, I told you I had that transition from plays and screenplays and then I start, you know, poking around in this community or trying to, and I, you know, people are like, why did you, you wrote a collection? Like writers who are established usually get collections published or you have to have a few things out before this can happen for you. So I was getting advice from some great people and I have to say, you know, Jonathan Mayberry is just an incredible man in terms of not just work and output and the material he puts out there but this man is so willing to help aspiring authors establish ones any advice he's always welcome I mean that man gives so much of his time I have to mention that but he would trade some advice with me and I took a little class with him and he was obviously on that skepticism of like you might want to just start firing off some of these stories to random places and see if you get some bites and then build it and then maybe you could shape the collection later and I did eventually listen at that point because 
you start looking at submission calls and it's going, <laughs> no, absolutely no collections. We don't want collections, no short story collections. And you're like, oh man, everybody's right here. What happened for me in that journey was I had a story, Parliament Press, which is pretty great. They posted a story on Christmas. They had this holiday event, story event, which it would just be posted online and it wouldn't be this big whole rights issue. So I was like, I'm going to submit one. And I, they accepted it. They posted online on Christmas. We had that. But in relation to other writers or people who want to do this, what was good about that is I had, and then um, Trembling with Fear wanted to do one, and that's the horrortree.com. So I had these two online postings, which for some people might not be like, oh, let's jump up and down time. But what was good about it, it gave me the confidence to be like, okay, now I can put that in a cover letter to say two of these stories have been posted here, blah, blah, blah. These are gaining some traction. You mean, as much as online will get you some traction, but it still was like, it's like I was taking some of the professional's advice, but at the same time, then with this games anthology, and there was a submission call, probably um, Dawn, and Dawn's terrific, her previous one, I was able just to ask, hey, I have a collection. I know, you know, and kind of already like talking it down, like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, just nobody takes these. Um, <laughs> well, you know, would you? And that fell within the last submission call, and she did. And like I said, it's a great company in terms of, she reads quite fast. Their their team reads quite fast. So I, I can't stress this enough. And in, in regards to Ruth Ann, I don't care about rejection. I don't, I'm not bothered by rejection. I, the only thing I'm bothered by is like, I'm going to submit something. I don't want to hear a year and a half later, like, which might sound like I'm a diva in that sense. But when you see someone like Dawn at DNT do it, like, Hey, here's a submission call. I'm going to accept it. I'm going to get through these and, you know, a pretty efficient block of time. You go, I don't care if anybody like that passes. I mean, she's great. She's great people, but I don't care if anybody passes, but you go, Oh, great. Now I could send this off to another place, but some places clearly don't like when you're casting out the net and like, here's my project to multiple places, but she was receptive to the collection. And fortunately for me, that, you know, it ended up going my way, but for anybody that would aspire to now, I don't know that I'd recommend starting off with a collection, but you know, ignorance is a, is our greatest asset. I wouldn't have written the I wouldn't have written a book if I didn't have one framed around Salem. COVID happened so and my wife was pregnant at the time and I'm like, oh you have to go to bed at eight. Oh, that's so no I'm kinda of kidding. <laughs> but I'm like, oh oh really and then just hammering the keys. So I got my was able to get my NYU writing drive just obsession out when I'm like, oh I work from home tomorrow and I'll have an hour drive. This is cool. So I could write a little bit longer at night. And like I said, if she, if the company wasn't receptive to a collection, it wouldn't have happened for me. And I'd still be casting out little shorts from it. And that would be okay. That would be okay. Some of them would get picked. Some of them, and they have, have been rejected. So I would have lived with it. But it also, like Ruthann points out, this community is so great where I don't want to say, oh, because the publisher takes you. I personally like when people have no problem rejecting me, even if they accepted something previously. That shows me, I'm like, okay, there's no favoritism. I don't like any of that. But, you know, you get in there and the community is so great that they're like, yeah, I'll, t I'll take a look at a collection. And you're like, well, you know, it's, that, that's a good place to be. And then, but also when I talked, even to mention The Pumpkin Thief, I was in that, I better write a novella or a novel because the odds of me publishing this are pretty low. So fortunately reach out to tons of people. This community is incredible. I mean, with people I don't even know, they'll respond with advice. And sometimes you're like, oh, I don't really want to do that. Or that's great. And that goes against everything I wanted to do. But they're like, yeah, they're right. They have 45 books out. I should probably listen to this. 
but then also re returning the favor. I mean, I, I really, I'm really excited when I read one of these anthologies or I see somebody else's work and I'm terrible or kind of getting a little bit better at Instagram, but like Ruth Ann says, you know, because people were helping me out, not necessarily helping me get published, but helping me like, Hey, I like that. Or I, you know, here's great advice. Like I want to post for them on Instagram, or if I read a story, I like share that. And I don't know how long that's going to go or how many followers and all that, but we want to help each other out. And, you know, my advice about the collection, I'm completely fortunate. I was a, I didn't tell my wife to buy me, go out and buy me something, um, but um, it was pretty exciting. It was kind of like, oh, okay. But I, I did believe in it. I will say it has its flaws and it's, it's a, it, it has that transition. You know, Chris, you mentioned the shift from screenwriting to where I'm sure I have stories and scenes where that's a lot of dialogue and not a ton of prose. So it's just trying to find the form, but also I think Ruthann touched on this as well, not just reading uh, the work of others to like, oh, who are the contemporaries or who are the people, but like reading for structure, reading for not ideas to take, but just be like, wow, look at what they're doing with the form. Look at how, what, what they do. Or me, an area where people, if they've praised anything, it's been dialogue. So I go, okay, that's fine. But what am I really weak at? I want to go read stories that are not dialogue heavy and see what they're doing with the form. So hopefully moving forward, whether they're good stories or bad ones, I'll be taking you know, some more chances, but that's kind of how the collection came about. What's coming up next for you guys then? Is it focusing on these um, book deals and delivering on those or have you got other projects on the go? Actually, I'm looking for a little time off somewhere along the line and I'm just, I'm just not seeing it. And here's something else marvelous that starts to happen. When you have published, especially in anthologies, you start to get invitations, meaning you won't have your work rejection. Well, you will be edited and you will still have to fit the publisher's view of what they want the project to be. But I've actually had a couple of really fun invitations to a couple of things. One of them is written. I have to start another one this weekend. I have something, it has probably pushed me the furthest, but I'm so excited about it. Crimson Pinnacle Press, and this was R.J. Rolls, he published me the very first time. He put out an invitation. He said, hey, I want to do a, a retelling of classic fairy tales and make them dark. So I've got that coming out next month. And I took, I took Cinderella because it's forever and always my princess. But I totally rewrote it. Now, when somebody says to subvert a story, means they don't want to be able to connect it to the original. So my story in that is called Midnight at the Glass Slipper. And my Cinderella character is a young woman who tends bar at a bar called the Glass Slipper. So I went a little dark with the story. She's mob connected. I've got a character in the story rather than your cute little mice and things scattering around helping Cinderella. There's gangsters. There's a hitman named, named Hamburger Mike. Um, Hamburger Mike for a reason. Um, so I've got that coming out. And then I'm going to be doing a, another friend. And she's really quite a fabulous woman in general, Stacey Lane Wilson. She does a lot of film work and she does a lot of writing. Um, she invited me to do a story for her rock and roll horror story anthology. That will be Tiny Danger, Demon Seamstress for the band. Sounds crazy, but these are so much fun to write. 
it's just an absolute blast. Uh, J.D. Horn, um, our fabulous and wonderful publisher and editor of Good Southern Witches, I'm, I'm sure you know this, Eric. He's got a call coming in August, but it's strictly gothic. Gothic is an old trope. Everybody's looking for gothic. They want the southern gothic. They want the gothic gothic. They want Jane Eyre st- standing on the cliffs, ready to throw herself over the edge with the wind blowing on her beautiful red cape. Gothic is becoming very popular again. And I know JD's got a call coming up in August for Strictly Gothic. Later in the year, and I can't say too much about this, I've got something really mind-blowing coming up to me because, like I said before, I was asked to publish with people that, oh my God, Chris, they're so much better than I am. I want to be them when I grow up. So I'm really going to have to put on my my best face for that and really try to pull something out with that. Um, and I'm going to interject here. I'm actually beta reading Eric's book for next year that he's publishing and I'm loving it so far. And here's one of the terrible pitfalls of writing all the time. You don't get as much time to read. So that is on my desk and I am reading that and I'm taking a little long weekend next weekend and hope to plow through that and see what he's got coming out and that type of thing. That's another thing. When you get to, I would say beyond the, and we're all rank amateurs. I'm very humble. I don't give myself any, any props with everything, because I've got so much more to learn. You get other people that want to read your work. Well, that's all well and good, but when you've got an inbox full of, hey, will you better read this for me before I submit it? It's so time-consuming, but it's also something we do for each other, too, because you're only as good as what your readers want to read. And if you can get another author who, who can see through your bullshit as it were and they're like no this story doesn't work i don't like why have you got this here this character that you 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 mentioned that but then you never bring them up again that's why we have to read each other's work too it's very very important um because when you do work with a pro editor and i keep coming back to editors because they are the glue that makes all of us better than we are they are going to call you out on it. So it's really best to discuss any of this with another author first and try to work out the kinks before an editor sees it and says, what the hell? I'm, ch- I'm chucking this whole chapter. No, please don't do that. I really like that chapter. Um, so that's the, that's the negative part of also being so immersed in what you're doing in terms of writing is you're fortunate and that it's very time consuming that you do want to read other people's work for them too. So um, I'm pretty much not going to take on much else for the rest of the year, but you know what? There's going to be a kick-ass Halloween call somewhere along the way. And we all know this is coming come June or July. Somebody's going to say, I'm putting this out for Halloween and all of us are going to crumble like cookies and go, I'll do a few all-nighters, but I got to submit to this. And there's a few publishers that we all just love. And, you know, for me, um, yeah, it's always great to, to be paid. I mean, we all, we all want to see, be rewarded for our work and that type of thing. But for me, it's just enough. It's just as much about, Oh my gosh. Is he really publishing this for Halloween? <gasps> I'm gonna, I'm gonna do everything I can to get a story into him. But you cannot ever, if you make a commitment, don't ever go back on it. And this is really, really important, no matter at what level writing you're at. If you commit to a project, 
and you say you're going to do it. If you commit to writing a review or a blurb or a synopsis for somebody's work, you absolutely have to follow through and do that. It's a very small community. And if you're a flake or you don't follow through on your contracts and do what you tell other authors and publishers you're going to do, you probably won't get asked again. So to me, that's a big part of it. But we all know that big Halloween is coming. That big Halloween open call is coming. And I think we're all waiting for that to some extent because that's so much fun. And what about you, Eric? What's next for you then? Are you looking forward to Halloween as well? I'm quite fond of Halloween, but apparently I have to write a gothic, 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 gothic Halloween extravaganza story. Um, no, um, I I finished a novella probably, oh gosh, I don't even know, January-ish, because my, well, we had the newborn February 17th, and I was in this like crash course to be like, I got to finish, I'm going to make this goal, I'm going to make this goal. And I, fortunately for me, I did. Um, so I'm going to start submitting that out. And, you know, that one I'm, what I mentioned earlier, I'm proud of in the sense of the form. Like I said, it's 43 short chapters and then this kind of like all out chaos in the final chapter. And that relates to family and um, kind of what Ruth Ann touched on very early in this when she says she looks at a thing and wonders, like there was some story from my dad's past who passed away this year, but I wasn't arguing, it wasn't really that close to him. But it's a weird thing when this happens, how much that can shape your brain where you're like, and then looking at, and I think this is something else Ruth Ann, like looking at something truthful and really thinking about it instead of a skewed sense. But there was a scenario, and this has probably been through the rumor mill so much, but it framed the idea for this one, which was there was some type of, whether it's grandparents or great grandparents, this violent incident, and the kids were left alone in the house. Now, there were the kids in this, that real story were quite young, but I kind of operate from that scenario, like, what would that be like? And what? would that be like to have a in the the leads a female you know uh in high school and then she's got two brothers but kind of watching how a family cracks under that type under those types of conditions where they have to be the adults and um you know so that one i i finished and like i said i hope i stuck the landing i don't know that i did you know we will see if anybody kind of bites on it um maybe they won't i i started after finishing that i started a y book which I'm kind of excited about. I'm only a third of the way through, but baby duty and all that. Although I could definitely be doing more baby duty. Um, that's, I have no timetable for when that will get done. In terms of just a real quick thing about content, one final bit of advice in terms of writing, aside from what could happen with me and you know trying to promote the collection and that's what I'll have to do. And I'm contacting some local libraries and things like that. I contacted some places in Salem. Some have been receptive. They just need to see like advanced reader copies. So if your readers out there have some of that stuff, please try to provide that. And like you said, like Ruth Ann said, if you, if you say you're gonna, you, you send them that stuff. You know what I mean? Even if they say this book's not for us and we don't wanna have an author event, you just do it. You follow through and all that. But in terms of writing advice and writing advice, I got at NYU, which probably I just was rubbing my hands together because I thought, well, that's definitely on my alley. The only time or the, the times I would get praised, but a professor said it in the best way, which was, don't be afraid to get weird. And if there's anything, I'm, I'm content, I'm pleased with my collection. And I'm sure there's later, whether reviewers pan it or I don't know what they're going to say about it, but I'm just saying, I'm sure because that's new and that is the representation of the transition from screenwriting and playwriting that there's going to be 
you know, maybe some things people want from it that's not there and it's got, it has its warts on it. But with the novella, what I'm proud of, not just finishing it before baby, uh, which was, which was nice, is I got weird and I, I got weird with form and I got weird with like character and I, it was like, you can't really hold back. Like in not just weird, like, Hey, I just want to write the weirdest book, but just got weird about behavior and form and the, and the form connects to the behavior. So um, pretty interesting chapters in there, you know, some, a few word chapters, you're like just a few words, but I, I really was playing and it felt good. I don't know that there will be a home for it. We shall see, but that's what I would say. And lastly, just overall, not just people that read my stuff or if they get these anthologies or come across Ruth Ann's work, I do mean this even for your listeners. People have been so great in this community. I don't want have any of your listeners reach out to me if you trust them and send send my email or my Instagram handle, please. I, I'd happy to give them advice. Like like I said, I'm we just made this transition and kind of feel like I'm starting off but completely embracing the notion of learning fiction form and where I can improve. But if they need any help or advice and submissions or hey, do you know of any opportunities? Do you think I anything coming up? I'd be a real selfish you-know-what if I didn't try to help people because I was that person reaching out to others, knowing why is Jonathan Mabry actually responding? Why is Kendare Blake actually responding to my email? But they did, and they gave great advice. They didn't need to do that, and not even about being on the level of those those relative giants, but I'd be happy to do that. I'm, I think Ruth Ann's nodding, so maybe she would do the same <laughs> Parrot that, yeah, well, yeah. If if there's if there's something I can do, absolutely. I, I have to throw this in here because it was a recent discussion, um, and there's some wonderful, wonderful groups on social media, Facebook in particular, where a lot of them. I mean, Ramsey Campbell sticks his head in all the time. Neil Gaiman sticks his head in every so often. These people stick their head in, and we're like, oh my god, was that really him? Yes, it was. They are watching. They are seeing what's going on. Um, it's just, it's just amazing what a small community it is. But if you're, if you're looking for help or you want to query somebody about something, be professional. This was just a discussion yesterday. A publisher said, if I write you something and answer, ask you a question, don't send me back a thumbs up sign. Talk to me. Say something. So I would say your communication skills, right from your very basic form in elementary school, be professional. Because when you get to a certain level, I have a couple publishers I'm, I'm personal friends with, but if I'm talking to them about a submission, oh my gosh, it's like I'm applying for a job. You, I'm very formal. I, I, it's always to the editor, absolute respect. Make sure you include anything you've done, no matter how small you may think it's to you. Somebody else might see a little spark in it. Like I said, I started this whole process submitting way over my head, not knowing that I was over my head, but I like to do that. Throw yourself in over your head. What's the worst that can happen? They're words. You, you, can, you can write them bigger, better. You can take the piece of paper or you can hit delete on the keyboard. Go over your head. I suggest that to everybody. Go over your head. See how far you can go with something. But yes, there's, there's so much help. Um, I'm more than willing. I don't have Eric's much more experience, but I have my own process and it's worked well for me. Um, I get picked up frequently. 
And like I said, I did a wonderful mentorship. There's, there's wonderful information in classes at all levels, paid, unpaid. But what I needed to learn to do was to polish, putting down what I wanted to write into a format that would work. And I did a wonderful mentorship, and it was brief. It was a month with Crystal Lake Publishing. And what Joe Menard's one of the best in the business, very respected. And one of the things he told me, be nice. Your words also have weight. If someone asks you a question, answer the question for them because it's going to come around. You're going, especially social media is ingrained in our lives at this point. Be nice. You, you, you just don't know. Build your relationships. That doesn't mean you should swallow any crap from anybody. But be nice to people. And, and Eric's gesture, that's, that's pretty much we all that take this seriously. We all want to do that for somebody else. Because please believe me, everybody's doing it for us. I didn't even, I didn't know the first thing about some of this. But if I asked somebody that was already an established professional, they were throwing me cues right, left, and center. And you just have to be, be receptive, be fluid. Understand that if you want to start writing, just start writing. Don't worry about if anybody likes it or not. You like it. And sooner or later, if you really like what you're writing, I'm so excited about the things that I write. I mean, I read them to my husband and my dog. Oh, that's another really important tip. When you finish reading, when you finish your story, read it out loud to yourself. Some people like the AI on their computer. I, I don't want to talk to a computer. I read it out loud to myself. I guess there are other proprietary bits of software. See how your words sound. But I'm sitting there at 2 o'clock in the morning. Mike, Mike, you want to hear this? I wrote this really cool chapter. No matter what level of your writing you're at, if you throw it out to other authors and other people in the community, you would be amazed at who responds to you. The people that like, and I just started tweeting. Oh, my God, don't even get me started. Um, Twitter's my, like my nemesis because you can't it's, it's just ridiculous. It's like having a rapid-fire conversation. You'd be amazed at the people that respond to you because you spark some little thing in them. They're curious or, yeah, I did that. Yeah, yeah. Have you read my stuff? Be very complimentary. If you genuinely like another author's work, tell them. It doesn't matter how big they are. Say, yeah, gee, you know. You know, Mr. King, you really influenced me. Actually, he put out a tweet the other day and people were going crazy. Something about were the Rolling Stones or the Beatles the better band? And oh my God, it was so much fun. And he was actually responding to all kinds of random people because he had a really strong opinion about it. So I guess it comes down to everybody's human. Everybody that's reading these stories, well, in my story, sometimes they're not always all human, but everybody that's reading these stories want to read. The, the gift of being able to read and to write is such a huge gift. So don't be afraid to just stick it out there. People are going to help you. If you really want to write, everybody will help you. And that's, that's the truth. That's probably the biggest point that Eric brought up. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. It's been a blast. Stay really in touch, has, yeah. please, and stay well. Take care of yourself. Chris the hand is mightier than the sword. A podcast for writers. The Chris Roberts Show.